1: Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. On this podcast, we chat about books, the writing process, and how literature has the power to change the world. I'm your host, Danny V, and I'm super excited to welcome back Gabriel Bergmosa. We last spoke about your incredible book, The Hunted, in episode 165, and here we are again with a very different book, The True Colour of a Little White Lie, and we are well over 300 episodes now, so welcome, Gabe.
0: Thanks for having me back, Danny. I'm really excited to to dive back into another chat.
1: Me too. I was thinking about our chat last time and we were talked about all sorts of things. So I'm sure we're just going to rave on about those things and I'm super excited about that.
0: (laughs) It was crazy because like I actually went back and I listened to it again and I was like, man, it's only half an hour and like we covered so much ground. Like it's crazy, you know, we went from like Dorian Gray to like the meaning of morality. And there was a bit of hunted talk in there as well. But like,
1: (laughs) there was a book in there, right? We were talking about a book. (laughs)
0: Yeah, there, was, there was a book i don't remember what it was but you know it was somewhere in there but, but yeah it was like it was crazy that we just covered like such a such a wide range of topics in in such a like contained yeah. period of time.
1: i don't waste any time gabe i speak fast and i just get straight to the point don't sit Dive next to in. me at a wedding because i won't ask you what you do i'll be like what is your darkest secret tell me now <laughs>
0: right to the good stuff
1: that's right i don't care what you do that's boring tell me the dark stuff anyway we're going to spend some time talking about your amazing new book, which is such a departure from The Hunted, The True Colour of A Little White Lie. Give us an elevator pitch for this glorious book. Right, so True
0: Colour essentially is the story of Nelson. He's a 14-year-old kid who just isn't having a really great time of it. Uh, He goes to a small country high school, but his best and really only friend has just moved away. The book kind of kicks off with him coming up with this, like, very sort of elaborate idea that he's going to ask out his crush Madison but that backfires in a pretty uh, deeply embarrassing way and you know things just kind of aren't really going well for him but when his parents take over a ski lodge at a nearby mountain resort he essentially discovers that he can completely reinvent himself that up on the mountain nobody knows he's supposed to be a loser and when he's up there on weekends he can make himself whoever he wants to be but I guess what sort of unfolds from here is this growing realization that reinvention is quite complicated and that even the smallest little white lies that you tell to make yourself look better can escalate and get out of control and lead you into some pretty massive pretty catastrophic and hopefully quite funny trouble so that that's essentially the kickoff for the book and then it sort of delves into you know a few a few sort of deeper themes and a few bigger questions and all of that but uh but I think ultimately you know I really wanted to just write something that was you know, that was, that was funny and that was quite gentle. And that again, as you said, you know, was a real departure from the hunted and really, you know, couldn't, couldn't quite easily be compared to the other book.
1: (laughs) Now I'm fascinated with reinvention and you mentioned that before and, you know, he changes his setting, I guess, and becomes a different person, but that must also be who you are. So I find that really interesting that although you think you're being someone different, a part of you still has to be that person. So maybe we are many different people wherever we are and with different people so I'm just fascinated with reinvention
0: yeah I think in Nelson's case in the book uh one thing that I did try to sort of thread through there was the idea that it's and I don't know if this is really a spoiler or not but it's quite a broad one if it is it's that Nelson isn't really reinventing himself on the mountain he's actually just being himself because he's (laughs) no longer constrained by this perception that's sort of been forced on him by his peers at school that he's somehow lesser or he's a loser or he's not cool or whatever and because up on the mountain he actually can be the purest version of himself Mm -hmm. I think where his problem comes in is that he mistakes this new persona that he has on the mountain as being somehow something fake or something that he's projecting or something that he's invented and it's the little lies that he tells as part of that persona to make himself look better not realizing that he actually doesn't have to do that anymore that actually lead him into trouble so i think what, what you say there about reinvention you know i think i've I'm somebody, I think, I think we all do this in varying degrees throughout our lives. You know, we, we go to a new setting or we start a new job or whatever. And there is always that there's the terror of coming to a new place, but there is also the appeal of realizing nobody here knows my baggage. Nobody here knows that, you know, I, I dated this person or I did this embarrassing thing at the old staff party, or, you know, this thing happened at my old school or whatever. And there always is that new chance To kind of start again and some people dive right into that and take that as a chance to pretend to be somebody totally different which is always going to be disastrous other people try to more or less be themselves and generally speaking those new opportunities afforded to us i think in different ways always kind of force us back around to looking at who we really are or who we really want to be. And, you know, I mean, I'm somebody who has, you know, at various points, particularly in my adolescence and early twenties, like falling for trap of being like, Oh, I'm in this totally new environment. I can be somebody totally different, but then you do realize very quickly that it is very, very hard to be anybody who isn't you, you know?
1: No, absolutely. And I'm really interested in high school. I mean, high school was a great and traumatic time, I'm sure for all of us. Yep. But it's interesting how those perceptions, they almost shape who you are, and they can stay with you in adulthood. And so like you say, he's himself, even when he's somewhere else, but he doesn't have that baggage of people's perceptions of him. So it's so interesting that you become almost what people think of you in high school, and that stays with you forever. Yeah, I think
0: there's part of all of us that is that, you know, that, awkward downtrodden high school kid that you know sort of never as as confident as we might project or as together as we might seem there is always part of us that I don't think ever really quite lets go of that like Mm -hmm. adolescent baggage that you know weighs us down in one way or another and I mean you know so like a lot of um a lot of the stuff in the book this, this probably doesn't come as a surprise to anybody who's read the book but a lot of the stuff in the book particularly early on is lifted directly from my own experiences in high school uh pretty much when people ask me about this I say if there's a part in the book that makes you cringe it's probably true like it's probably (laughs) something lifted directly from an experience I actually had and yeah, I mean there was something you know maybe maybe a bit cathartic or like a bit bit like an exorcism I guess in in doing that but um but beyond that, you know, I was I was somebody who struggled a lot in my first three years of high school when I went to, you know, my high school up in my small country town where I came from originally, but then coming to my second half of high school when I went to school in Melbourne, I really found my people and I really found, you know, people who were like-minded people who I connected with, and I think came into my own a lot more there. And that's not to say that, you know, there was th- that, that journey was suddenly over or whatever. There were always those insecurities, always those things you're grappling with those things you're trying to overcome those things you're, you know, struggling with and and trying to somehow wrangle into some, some understanding of yourself that you're comfortable with, which I don't think maybe ever really happens, or if it does, it definitely hasn't happened for me. But, but, you know, I, I think that, The biggest thing that I realized in later years, because I don't think I've ever really realized this in the moment, was that when I came into this new environment where I got along a lot better, it wasn't actually me who had really changed. It was the environment that had changed. It was the fact that I was now with people who I didn't have to pretend or I didn't have to kind of feel like I had to be deferent to or anything like that. It it was just that beauty of discovering people who actually like you for you like who like you for who you are and who you don't have to pretend around or you don't have to try to fit within their conception of what makes somebody who's cool or socially acceptable or whatever else. And that was something I wanted to explore in the book in, in some different ways.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? I think you, you hit the nail on the head when you said you found your people because that's what it's about, isn't it? Because once you find your people, you don't have to feel awkward and you don't have to feel like you don't fit in on an outsider. You find your people and everything sort of falls into place. I love that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I don't think it's another thing in the book as well. You know, I don't think that, uh, you know, the idea of somebody liking you for you, right. I think that there are some people out there who say, oh, you know, I just want people who like me for me. But sometimes you do need to work on yourself. And, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. there are things about yourself you do need to confront or challenge or try to move beyond. And that is another part of Nelson's journey is that there are parts of his character in the book that, he definitely needs to grow out of and he needs to realize aren't okay. And that is a big part of his journey. But I think one of the, one of the biggest tricks of adulthood is learning where that dividing line is like learning, learning how much of any problem that you have with a peer group or a social group or another human being is them and how much is you. And I don't think it's ever really entirely black and white, but at a certain point you have to trust your judgment and trust that you have arrived at the place where you can identify, okay, look, I'm self-aware enough to understand that I think, you're the problem, or I think I've done this and that could be better and I need to somehow, you know, make amends for that. that makes
1: sense. I totally agree. And, you know, I think it's, there is a line because there are some people who just aren't going to like you for whatever reason, maybe it's just, apparently there's this study that 1% of people don't like you just because of you look like someone that they didn't like before. So you've got no chance with those people, right? So it's this psychological thing. So there's going to be people in life that just don't like you for whatever reason. And I think, you know, that's different to then having those difficult conversations with you about, oh, you know, maybe I could be a better person. And I find those conversations, you have to have with yourself difficult. But as I think you get older, you find them really important and you find them really eye-opening and you're like, oh, yeah, like I could do this differently or I'm open to finding out more about myself. So I think that is, you know, not just a coming of age with this 14-year-old kid, but I think, and someone said it the other day, we're always coming of age and I love that.
0: Yeah. Well, I think it's, you know, those those key moments, like what you just said about those hard conversations you have with yourself in a lot of ways, I think those conversations can become the key turning points in your life or in your development as a human being, like the moments where you really confront yourself and you really say, is this the person I want to be? And do I have the potential to be somebody else? And, You know, I think that that also kind of comes down to, you know, to to how, I guess, from an artistic perspective, how you respond to criticism. Because I always say to people, like, I know a lot of people who, if if they get a bad review or whatever else, they will, you know, fly off the handle and they will swear black and blue that this person didn't get it and they didn't understand me. And, you know, they were just out to get me or they went in with an agenda or whatever. And I always sort of say, well, yeah, those things can be true. But you also owe it to yourself as a creative and as a person to really interrogate what they're saying. And you, you are perfectly within your rights to come out of that and say, you know what, I still think they were wrong and they had an agenda or whatever else, but until you genuinely considered the potential that they are right and they have a point, I don't think you can move forward from that with any, real emotional authenticity and that's the same whether it's a bit of personal criticism or a bit of creative criticism and I think it's just really important to to be open and willing to having those hard conversations with yourself which I think does tie into the journey that Nelson has particularly in the back half of the book
1: yeah absolutely now what I was super interested in Gabe I was I was picturing you know I don't know how this works with you but pitching to your publisher so you've got the hunted you've got the follow-up to the hunted and you're like but in between I'm going to write this book, this gorgeous <laughs> little book, 14-year-old, empathetic voice, really sweet. You know, we've talked about it, you know, his problems and all that, but it's kind of a beautiful, wholesome book. I really enjoyed it. So how did that conversation go, okay. Gabe? <laughs> we were like, what? Okay, so <laughs>
0: um, look, I am still to this day, disbelieving that i got away with this because you know like i don't you know and this isn't to say that like i'm somehow special or different or whatever but just that you know that there are very few authors who i think pivot as as you know as do or do as much of a 180 as as these two books are the hunted and true color but the reality is that i wrote true color before the hunted like the Mm -hmm. very first draft of it so or actually no that's not quite true i wrote it between different parts of the hunted i think i might i've spoken about it in a few different interviews maybe i spoke about it with you last time how the flashback scenes of the hunted were written about a year before the present day stuff in the hunted originally it was a novella and then i yeah, expanded and everything and it was in between writing those two parts which i think was late 2017 late 2018 that i wrote the first draft of this book and honestly it was just something that had been in my head for a long time because when i was 13 or 14 my parents did run a ski lodge on mount Buller. And I mean, none of what happened up there when I was, when I was up there and when I had those experiences is as dramatic as this book, like (laughs) most of like the interpersonal drama and stuff in here is like essentially made up. Like in reality, I went up to the mountain every weekend. I did sort of find that there was this, oh, cool. I've got no baggage up here and I can be whoever I want, as opposed to sort of somewhat bullied, downtrodden kid that I maybe was back at school. But there was no, there was no big ski race, there was no love triangle, there was no <laughs> getting embroiled in the dramas of the staff members or any of that. I mean, that's that's all kind of fiction. But but you know, I just I'd always, I guess I'd always kind of carried that memory as something I was really that, that I that really stuck with me and I was really fond of. And probably like the first time in my life that I was surrounded by adults who spoke to me like one of their own and sort of treated me with respect, because I realized in retrospect, as much as they all seemed a lot older than me. A lot of all the staff members who worked up there were only like four or five years older than I was at the time. And so they weren't that much further along in their journey. So I was kind of blown away by these people who seemed so grown up and mature and serious kind of, you know, inviting me in as one of their own. But, but in reality, you know, they were, they were also kids, you know, now I would look at people of that age and be kind of like, Oh, you know, you've got lots of learning left to do and blah, 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 and whatever. But so I guess that whole experience just kind of stuck with me. And then I wrote the first draft of it in yeah, early 2018 which was you know still still kind of fictionalized and still sort of taking the basic framework of that experience of the escape and the getaway and discovering this new version of yourself that's actually just a more true version of yourself and you know amped it up with a bit more drama and everything and i initially sent it to my now agent tara before i sent her the hunted and she sort of read it and she said, look, you know, it's it's a really sweet book, it's really gentle, but it's still sort of, you know, and I think it's got a lot of great messages, but it just needs a bit more, you know, it's a bit more excitement, needs a bit more oomph and and all of that. And so I sort of just put it in the drawer and then I went back and I wrote The Hunted, I finished that, I said that to her, that was signed up and that sort of went on. And it was once The Hunted had been acquired by HarperCollins and once that ball was sort of rolling that I came back to this manuscript. And I sort of did some work on it. So I added, I, you know, I worked in the ski race. I worked in some more hijinks with the staff. I worked in some more of that drama kind of running through it. And I just sort of quietly slipped it back to Tara. And I was just sort of like, Hey, you know, since everything's going really well with the Hunter, do you want to have a look at this one again? And, (laughs) and then it just sort of, it was just so funny because it almost just happened really like matter of factly in the background, like Tara then sent it on to Lisa Berryman, who of course is the children's publisher at Harper Collins. And, Lisa called me and we had a really, really great chat about it. And she, she just seemed to understand it instantly. And I was just sort of sitting there thinking, yeah, but like surely somebody's going to say, oh, but you can't publish this like between the hunted and the, the forthcoming sequel to the hunted, which is very much in that same hyper-violent, extremely full on, you know, twisty turny, uh, almost savage way. But, but, you know, they, they, they let me do it, and you know, I was, you know, I was wondering at times, was I going to have to write it under a pseudonym? Was I going to have to, you know, add some more like scalping and bloodshed or something? <laughs> like you know, it was, it was like it sort of
1: up in the ski mountain, there's a hundred. Yeah, up.
0: but. But I tell you what, like, it's so funny to like, you know, now that I've got printed copies of both books, like, it's so funny to look at them side by side. You know, The Hunted, you've got like the power lines and the jagged text and, you know, the nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. And then you've got this the cover.
1: gorgeous. Of, I love you know, this cover. Seriously, the it's the one of my favorite and... covers. It's just so bright and beautiful. It's I really great, like isn't it. it? Yeah. It
0: really yeah. So, so no, look, I mean, it just, I think it was just a different. were both stories that i really want to tell in very different ways and i mean i I don't think it's probably a huge surprise to anyone that this one is probably a bit close to my heart just because it is lifted so much from my own life and my own experience but you know that the fact that i have been lucky enough and fortunate enough to end up in a situation where i can have both of these stories that are so diametrically opposed on shelves within a year of each other is absolutely mad to me. I mean, if you mm. told me two years ago that this was a possibility, and you know, I mean, if nothing else, even if true color doesn't do well, like I'm I'm really glad that I got the opportunity to put it out there in the world and be like, you know, I'm I'm not just the the vicious bloodshed of the hunter. You know, there's there's, <laughs> there's
1: another side to game. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's other stories I want to tell and there's other experiences <laughs> I want to explore and other things I want to say. And you know, I'm just, I'm just so glad that I got to get this book out there because I, I'm really, really proud of this book.
1: Yeah, and I really enjoyed it too. It was funny because when I first saw it on social media, I did have to stop and go, that is Gabe. Oh, it is. Okay, <laughs> cool. All right, carry on. <laughs> now, the big news, the huge news is that The True Colour of a Little White Light is being adapted into a feature film. Is this true?
0: Yeah, so it's that's another thing that just sort of happens, you know, you know, quite quickly and and quite surprisingly it was options by pirate size productions who I've done a bit of work with before they're a melbourne based production company and dan nixon who runs pirate size he went to vca with me and so you know we're we're really close friends we've known each other a long time and pirate size has just been absolutely on the up and up over the last few years like there's a few really big things that are happening for them behind the scenes that you know i that aren't public yet and I don't think we can really sort of talk about but basically you're going to be hearing that name a lot in certain television and film circles and you know I wrote an episode of their um this is this is something again totally divorced from the Hunt and Andrew color I wrote an episode of their preschool educational series pencil pals that was on abc last year and that was like it's so cool it's like little stop motion uh, animated figures sort of you know teaching kids about story and writing and stuff it was it was a lot of fun but you know pirate size just seemed like the perfect home for true color because that they really got it and dan like me grew up on the ski slopes and just sort of knows that environment really well and knows that world really well and has like a real love for it and then we were lucky enough that we got a really generous development grant from the ACTF the Australian Children's Television Foundation which has led to you know quite extensive development of the of a treatment and a screenplay with a view to it then uh, attaching more funding to be made into a feature film down the line. So as we speak, I'm just about finished the first draft of the screenplay, so I've been working on that. That's due, at the time of recording, that's due next week, so I'm kind of, like, frantically trying to get it done. But, I mean, it's been a fascinating experience, you know, because it's um, obviously the book is very interior. You know, the book is mm. a lot of it really takes place in Nelson's head. So the journey to adapting it for the screen and being like, how do you tell that same story without making it just wall-to-wall voiceover or, or anything like that has been really challenging. So what, what I've kind of viewed it as is, is a way to almost... how how do I put this? Like a way to almost provide like a bit of a like director's cut of the book because in the film, you know, because you're not just stuck in Nelson's perspective in the film, you're able to see more of what's going on with the staff member stories. You're able to see more of what's going on with Juliet and Adele's stories. You're able to see more of what's going on with the parents' stories. And so there's been like a real thrill for me to kind of move outside of Nelson's perspective and get to open up the world a bit more and make it more visual and more cinematic and all of that. So it's been a really exciting process. And so far, the ball was rolling really well, and yeah, I'm just really excited to see where it goes from here.
1: Yeah, I'm super excited too. I can't wait because this—it's funny when you know I'm a very visual reader, so I have this story in my head visualized. So I'm really interested when it comes out as a feature film. I'm really excited. Congratulations too. That's amazing.
0: No, <laughs> thanks so much. It's really yeah, it's wild, but it's it's a it's a great process. I'm having yeah. such a
1: blast. Now, Maggie is back from The Hunted with the follow-up, The Inheritance. How did it feel to be back in Maggie's brain after being in Nelson's brain?
0: Um, It's, look, The Inheritance, look, there will be, yeah, The, the Inheritance has been a really interesting experience writing it because it's, it's changed quite drastically from first draft to what's going to be on shelves in July. But I really found that as much as, there were some real struggles in writing Inheritance because, you know, I really didn't want it to be The Hunter too. You know, I was like, cool, I'm bringing Maggie back. And, but I, I really didn't want it to be another, you know, gritty blood soaked Outback Noir story. It, it's still quite gritty and blood soaked, but it takes <laughs> place mostly in urban settings. It's more of like, if The Hunted was like Wolf Creek meets Assault on Precinct 13, this is more like John Wick set in Melbourne. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, it's a a chase thriller. It's Maggie kind of coming back to Melbourne to contend with a loose end from her past, from before The Hunted, that then turns out to be quite a bit more than a loose end, more like a whole loose loose jumper that's being like pulled apart Mm -hmm. as she pulls on the threads and it all chaos unravels. But I really found writing The Inheritance... That, you know, I, I always loved Maggie and I always was really attached to her as a character in writing The Hunted. But I found in Finishing the Inheritance that I was, I walked out of that book feeling a lot like like I understood her a lot better. Mm-hmm. And I always felt in The Hunted that I was like, I find you really interesting and I really want to know more about where you go next. But I never was under any illusions that I had a full grasp on who she was, what was driving her, what her past was. I mean, she was a bit of, insofar as she's an enigma in the book, she was quite an enigma to me. And I, I sort of always knew a bit more about her, obviously, but but probably not as much more as an author should know about a character they're writing about. So The Inheritance was really a chance to delve really quite deeply into her head and into her world and into what drives her, and what makes her tick. And there are moments in writing The Inheritance that, that really broke my heart. That, like reading it i kind of go oh wow maggie you like there is this incredibly fragile broken vulnerable side to you that you know is just going to get disappointed again and again and again sort of through that that she has to come out stronger and become who you know who she's meant to be long term but i mean the, the contrast of writing about a character like nelson writing about a character like maggie could not be more pronounced mm-hmm. because whereas nelson's neurotic and self-deprecating and you know runs off on these you know spiralling tangents in his head and makes terrible decisions and stumbles (laughs) over himself you know Maggie's so like she's like a panther you know she's so taciturn and keeps to herself and she's quiet and she's you know she's very calculating and very interior but as opposed to Nelson you don't really get to see as much of her interiority because obviously her stories are written in third person and you know I, I thought about that too because Tana French who is you know is my my absolute idol her newest book the searcher was her first book written in third person and every single interview she's done about it she's been asked about that and she says well the difference was that the character in the searcher was more of a thinker than a sorry more of a doer than a thinker Mm -hmm. you know he was somebody for whom it didn't feel as necessary to give you a full rundown of everything he was thinking because he's a character who believes that his actions are what defines him not his thoughts and i think that's the difference between maggie and nelson like maggie is very action driven very much about what she does very much about how she reacts to situations and responds whereas nelson is a lot more about the wild spiraling neurotic uh interiority of being a teenager and thinking you know that everything's going wrong around you and then five minutes later thinking that everything's as amazing as it could possibly be and you know writing those two characters in in quite close succession is very interesting, but but a lot of fun. And, and, and again, just an absolute privilege to get to do both, you know?
1: Yeah, it's amazing. It really is. Now, last time, to my great joy and pleasure, we went on an Oscar Wilde tangent and talked about yes, my favourite book, The Picture of Joy and Grey, which I was very pleased about. Um, so I want to know what you've been reading or what you've loved or what's inspired you. Talk to me about another book.
0: Okay. So what, what have I read recently that's really, um, really... going could be okay, so, something old. So I read through... Um, in between us speaking last time and now, I read Jack Heath's uh, Timothy Blake books. Yep. And oh my god, what a time! What a <laughs> glorious, joyful time! I like the 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 sheer like delightfully, gleefully messed up sort of sort of uh, uh worldview that is those books. But the the fact that they're you know they're they're over the top and they're they're vicious and they're violent but they're knowingly so but they manage to sneak in these really fascinating and challenging questions of morality like in the midst of all this absurd bloodshed and everything i mean i'm so i'm so inspired by what jack does and i'm so Jealous of how he does it with such apparent ease, and you know, I mean, I think Jack's a bit of an inspiration to me in a lot of ways because you know he's somebody who can go from writing for children yes. to writing like you know somebody using a bit of broken bone as a lock pick at the end. <laughs> you know, like it's it's incredible that he can do it, and you know, so so those those really really stood out to me recently. Um, and how do you make
1: a cannibal? a likable character who you're actually rooting for in the story and you want this oh, love know. story for him. And you're like, I know, what am I thinking? I'm, I'm so invested in him and Thistle.
0: No, be together. You guys are so meant for each other, but he's a cannibal. And she's like, I don't know how he does it. I genuinely don't. And I mean, believe huh? me, I sit there as I read these books and I am <laughs> taking notes the whole time. through. I'm sitting there being like, how do you do this? Because it's just so,
1: and there's, there's actually um I've spoken to Jack many times about um, Thistle and Timothy Blake just getting married and putting their differences aside and he just won't listen to me. So,
0: Oh, look, you know, I, I hold out hope that that's what's, uh, <laughs> that's what's waiting for us in the in the book four that I I, I really hope will come. <laughs> but I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's quite, so, so, I mean, that was, and then actually um, speaking of Jack, I did, there was a technique. We'll talk about it more probably once the inheritance comes out, but there is a technique that he used in, particularly in, uh hideout and hunter that i flat out stole for the inheritance there was there was this one big challenge i had in the inheritance where i was like oh yeah i'm kind of struggling with that i don't really know how to like how to make this how to to convey this information and to to give this situation the depth and the guts that it needs and i was kind of really going back and forth on how to do it and then I thought, hang on, well, Jack did exactly that like this in those books and I 100% <laughs> ripped off his technique. And um, so, so I, I owe him quite a bit.
1: I can't wait for Jack to listen to this episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: uh if, if you're out there jack i am i am looking at your books with with <laughs> immense envy so
1: <laughs> and taking notes in the in the in oh the absolutely
0: margin. scribbling all the way through
1: <laughs> but yeah jack has done exactly what you've done you know gone from genre to genre um from those kind of horror sort of psychological thriller books to you know all types of kids' books, so that's really interesting, and it can be done. Obviously, I like to call it Jackie Frenching, but I guess she's never really written like a a hunted sort of Wolf Creek number, so maybe that's coming up for her. I don't know. Maybe,
0: yeah. Let's. I mean, look, if, if Jack if if Jackie French writes a hunted Wolf Creek number, I will be first in line to read oh, that.
1: I'll be right behind you. Yeah. <laughs> okay, why do you write?
0: oh uh, why do I write? Um, because I'm not good at anything else. Uh, but but also just because, like, I mean, I. Even, I, I think I, I maybe said that to you last time, but I also think that my perspective on it's maybe developed a bit because obviously the last year writing-wise since, well, no, really the last two years kind of since The Hunted was acquired have looked very, very different for me, you know, than anything did beforehand. And, and writing has become much more of a full-time job than it ever was previously. I mean, it, it really is a full-time job and at times it's really intense. You know, I mean, I'm working on, of three different projects simultaneously even when it is hard and even when it is intense and even when you're really banging your head against the wall trying to figure out how to make a story work for you the, the moments where something clicks or the moments where you go of course that of course that's what has to happen or of course that's what's going on or the moments where you write a passage that kind of makes you feel as emotionally moved as your characters are in that moment for one way or another I mean, how do you, how do you go past that? Like, how do you go past like the thrill and the joy of getting to make stuff up and getting to like, you know, come up with this stuff that never actually happened, but to let yourself get so swept up in it and let yourself be as, as, as emotionally invested as the characters are and to be surprised by your own story. I mean, what, a, what an absolute gift for this to be my job, you know? And so, I mean, why I write has always kind of been the same. Like I've, I've never, it's been the only thing I've ever been truly passionate about. It's been the only thing I've ever been to varying degrees good at. But now, I mean, the, the fact that this is something I get to do for a living and the fact that I get to, you know, to, to chase those beautiful moments where a story really comes together and to, on occasion, find them and then share them with the world. I mean, how good is that? Like, how do you go past that? It's just, it's the best and I absolutely love it
1: yeah absolutely and then that gets extended because those feelings are then passed on to your reader and your readers feeling all those things and being invested in your character so that must be even you know more amazing
0: look when anybody comes to me and says you know like and it's always funny with readers because you know you you have your favorite moments when you when you write something and funnily enough those moments are like seldom the ones that readers come and talk to you about they have their own favorite moments which which is its own kind of magical but like the fact that something that didn't have that emotional impact on you can have on them and and vice versa. But, you know, the moments where somebody comes up to you and really gets what you've done or really gets why you've done it a certain way and says, Oh man, you know, I was really like blown away by that. Or I really like loved how that was a comment on that or whatever else it was like the moments where you kind of go, Oh wow, somebody got it. You know, like Mm -hmm. it was, it, it, it really came across like that's because I mean, you can't, you can't sit, over your audience and i said this i used to say this in theater all the time when you know if you get a review that doesn't say what you want to say or if somebody speaks to you afterwards and they sort of say oh i didn't really get it and you try to explain it and they'll go oh that makes actually that makes sense but you, you can't sit there with your audience and you know point out the meaning <laughs> of every line or point out why this thing works even if they don't think it does or justify every decision you made but the moments where it feels like you're in sync with a reader where a re- reader really gets what you were trying to do i mean those are just incredible those are just magic
1: yeah absolutely because once the book or script or film or theater production goes out into the world it doesn't belong to you anymore in some ways it belongs to the person who's who's consuming it
0: no not at all and I mean that's that's kind of you know let the let the baby bird fly out of the nest a bit And (laughs) that's always confronting in in a lot of different ways but kind of the beautiful thing about getting to write a series is like okay cool you know I, I did the hunted but I still get to see Maggie again, you know, I still get to spend more time with her, I still get to like, you know, develop our relationship, learn a bit more about who she is, uh, delve a bit deeper, take her to new adventures, be surprised by things that she does, which is often the case with her. And I mean, that's, that's really exciting as well, like to, to kind of get to have that ongoing, I guess, conversation, hopefully with the readers who, who I really hope for more, more of that.
1: Well, I'm looking forward to it too. So I hope we get to talk again later in the year about the uh, about Maggie's new story.
0: I would love that. I mean, it's like you know, it's at that point where I just feel like I've been sitting on it for so long that I'm like, (laughs) all I want to do is talk about it now, (laughs) like and then discuss all the things that happened because there are there are some moments in that book that I, you know, there are moments in that book that I'm really just proud of from a writing perspective, but there are also moments in that book I have like, you know, as a uh, like similar to certain moments in the Hunted that I have that like that gleeful, vicious delight of being like, I can't believe I got away with that. Like I can't believe that's <laughs> going to like,
1: that's, that's mad. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward for to picking out the bits that resonated with me and you can we can match them up and you can say, oh, that didn't, I didn't think you'd pick up on that. Whatever. So that's going to be a fun conversation.
0: No, I cannot wait for that.
1: <laughs> Gabe, it's always a pleasure speaking to you. It's always a delight. And we always cover so much ground because I think I found someone who talks as fast as I do. So <laughs> what a joy. <laughs> so no no one can listen to this podcast you know how some people listen to podcasts on a faster speed good luck with this one <laughs> yeah
0: no I don't think that's gonna work I mean oh, and I always try like it's this is, like, I think you bring this out of me, Danny, because I always, like, I, I try to do an interview and I go, oh, I need to, like, because I listen back and I go, oh, I'm, I'm speaking a million miles an hour. I have to, like, slow it down, speak more steadily. But then I get talking to you and I'm like, and I'm off. But you get like,
1: excited, right? That's like yeah, me. I tried. Yeah. My friend was like, you know, I, I listen to all podcasts on double time, but I can't listen to yours on double time. And I thought I did one of those difficult conversations, Gabe, about myself. And I'm like, okay should I try and talk a bit slower? And I just went, it's just not me. I'm just excited and enthusiastic and I need to get all the stuff out of my head. So I'm sorry, I just speak fast. I finally met my my person who speaks the same way.
0: (laughs) Well, I am very glad and very proud to be that person. People
1: might have to slow down this episode.
0: (laughs) Well, that's all right. I mean,
1: half half speed. It's always a joy. Thank you so much, Gabe. And uh, maybe we'll catch up in person one day, just like we did before the pandemic. Can you believe we met in person before the pandemic and we had no idea what was ahead of us? I know. And then I think a week later or something, we went into lockdown. I remember that was the last event I went to before we all got locked down.
0: I remember exactly what it was because I went to Austria the next day. That's right. Yeah, you said that. Yeah, I was there for three weeks. And then the week after I got back, we went to lockdown.
1: Mm -hmm. Like, Had I
0: come back like a week later, things would have been very, very different yes you like.
1: might still be there yeah
0: absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. which you know um, well so i was about to say wouldn't have been the worst thing in the world because obviously austria is beautiful but then at the same time i'm like uh oh, europe's kind of had it a bit rough so yes, maybe yes. australia was the place to be We're pretty end. lucky
1: here at the moment yeah well thank you again gabe it's been a joy and uh, we'll speak soon
0: awesome thanks so much for having me again danny